welcome. Thank you so much for having us here. It's always great to be in this beautiful bookstore. And um, are folks able to hear who are in the back? Is this a good volume level? Great. If at any point you can't hear, we could stand up. I don't know. Would it be more accessible and in various ways if we were standing? So first we just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge this moment, um, which isn't just about um, coronavirus. There's a lot of things going on in the world right now and just to kind of root into the moment. So um, I think for a lot of us, we're thinking about um, a lot of domestic urgencies, right? Around things like paid sick leave and universal health care. Um, there were, of course, the primaries last night. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times last week. I don't know if folks saw it. Um, it was about uh, the news that ICE is boosting its operations in so-called sanctuary cities to arrest and deport um, some of our undocumented brothers and sisters. And um, just starting to do like around-the-clock surveillance with a new elite team of forces. Um, and those operations have begun, begun here in New Orleans. So um, I couldn't think of two better people than Dan Denver and Thea Rio Francos to help us just uh, talk both about how we got here and why we got here, and also to think together a little bit about where we need to be going into the future. Uh, so we're going to just dive right in. Before that, though, we wanted to just do a quick land acknowledgement um, to acknowledge the native inhabitants of this land. Um, you know, New Orleans sits on land that uh, belongs to the, to the Chitimacha people. And uh, still, along with other tribes in Louisiana, groups like the Atacapa, the Caddo, um, the Choctaw, Homa, Natchez, and Tunica tribes, uh, just wanted to acknowledge um, the land on which we sit and um, the, the history, the settler colonial history um, in which we're here today having this conversation. So first, I um, we're gonna use, your books are beautiful. Um, I'm so excited. Um, have any folks here already read them? Okay. Wow. Okay. Wow. Some early birders. Awesome. Okay. So this is. Um, there's going to be some spoilers in here I've for read you. I've read the book. <laughs> 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 Me too. Me too. Um, and they are. Um, they they actually intersect in beautiful ways. So we're going to try to just have a conversation that is a little circular amongst the three of us. And I thought we could open with you, Thea. Um, your book uh, starts with a vignette about New Orleans and in sort of a Katrina 2 sort of scenario. And it walks us through a climate narrative that also weaves in like the state of technology and also just like a social and political reality. Um, and this is how I understand one of the foundations of the Green New Deal, that it's not just looking at climate, sci climate science or like the data, but that it's also layering on the need for social and political reforms. And so uh, just briefly, I want to make sure before we get into the details that everyone in the room understands what the Green New Deal is, what it's not, um, and also what it might become. Okay, great. Thanks. I love that question because I, when I do my own talks um, that I structure myself without a moderator, I always start with like thinking about what is the Green New Deal and how to define it. I, I'm a, a teacher, a professor, an educator, and I don't like to assume that anyone knows what things are um, before they walk into the room. So um, the Green New Deal, um, I think the broadest and, and most kind of inviting way to think about it is that it's a totally new paradigm for climate politics. Um, and it's a paradigm that takes seriously the fact that our climate crisis, which is not a future event, it's a current and unfolding and worsening event, 
is deeply connected to the crisis of social and economic inequality, right? That we can't actually, we can't and we shouldn't, and it's actually not politically pragmatic even to think about those as separate things, but rather we should think about them as the same set of interlocking crises. So unlike prior climate policies, it um, doesn't see climate as something like abstract and out there that like doesn't affect us, that isn't connected to our everyday lives, and instead does the opposite. It sees climate as something that's deeply imbricated in the ways that we live, but also in the structures of inequality that we want to transform for other reasons. Um, so that's the broadest way to think about the Green New Deal. Um, and maybe I'll give just like one or two examples. Is that, I don't know how long I should rant on for, but um, so, so one, um, one example of a Green New Deal policy that I love to sort of use as an as a instructive one is green affordable housing. Um, and the reason I'm bringing that up, um, I know that in New Orleans, as in many cities around the country, there's a crisis of, of the affordability of housing. Um, at the same time, we know that, or maybe folks in the room may or may not know, but, but sort of climate scientists know that housing and the buildings in general that create our built environment are a major source of emissions. That may or may not be obvious, but the reason why that is is because all of our heating, our cooling, our electricity, our energy, all of that routes through housing, right? And so housing is a place where it can actually target to reduce emissions by changing how some of those systems operate. Um, so housing is, um, is a, a crisis issue because of the unaffordability of housing. Housing is a crisis issue because it helps contribute to the climate crisis. Um, and also we know, and, and New Orleans I think is a, is a place to explore this, but so are many other cities around the world, that housing um, is, is built into our segregated environments, right? We know that housing is segregated by class and race and ethnicity in this country. So um, targeting housing is a way to kind of address all those issues at once. Like what if we rebuilt existing housing, retrofitted it, weatherized it, insulated it, did all these things to make it much less um, um, uh, emission, sort of re um, to reduce its emissions and make it more energy efficient. What if we did that? What if at the same time we decided to make that housing affordable and racially and class integrated? Um, and what if at the same time we guaranteed that all of the ways that we um, both retrofitted housing and built new housing was unionized jobs and we created like millions of unionized jobs in the process, right? So it's like a single policy intervention social and social housing, right? And made it affordable or free or you know whatever our conception of public housing is, right? So with that single policy intervention of retrofitting homes to make them greener and creating a bunch of green public and social housing, we create jobs, we reduce the inequality of race and class that structures our landscapes, and we also reduce emissions. And this is something that addresses the very concrete demands of housing movements and tenants' rights movements and movements for racial justice at the same time that it addresses the climate crisis, right? So it's sort of about like, what are the policy interventions that respond to social movements that like do all those things at once? Um, that's kind of the spirit of, of the Green New Deal in sort of one example. And can you talk about just the time scope of it? Because I was surprised. I, I think I think one of the things that feels <laughs> overwhelming is like, <laughs> exactly. And so talk to us about the, yeah. the time frame. Um, so the time frame that scientists are giving us um, in terms of what like the IPCC reports have said and what some other mega recent reports have said about how fast we need to move to avert the worst of the potential climate catastrophe. Again, I, as I said, and I think it's important to acknowledge, the climate crisis is not in the future. It's already happening. It's been happening for like, we could say it's been happening for 500 years, but it's like certainly really happening now. And I think that's visceral to people in terms of extreme weather um, and, and other kind of, um, and rising seas and flooding and the stuff that you 
you deal with on an everyday basis in the city. So, um, so one is to say it's already happening, but then it's like, okay, what time scale do we have to deal with it so that we can actually get a handle on averting the, the worst effects? Um, and scientists give us around 10 years for that. Um, and 10 years to cut global carbon emissions in half, right? So it's a fast time scale and it's an ambitious goal. And I think we also need to situate us, settler colonialism was brought up and we'll talk about that more with Dan's book um, more explicitly, but we have to think about the sort of global structures of inequality that also structure emissions, right? So the top 10% in terms of the wealthiest income people in the world are responsible for over 50% of lifestyle related emissions. Like 10% of people, 50%. And the bottom 50% are responsible for like 10, like it's like so unequal. It's the most unequal thing in terms of who's contributed. And so in the global north, not to downplay the fact that we have deep inequalities within the global north around who's responsible, but just to sort of simplify for a moment, in the countries like the US and, and Europe and Japan and elsewhere, um, we are responsible for vast majority of emissions. So that timeline gets even faster here. Like we need to start changing faster because we have more responsibility and because we contribute more to global emissions. So, so the time frame is quick. And I think that can be overwhelming um, for sure. And I want to acknowledge that. Like we might already feel some anxiety with those, you know, the words that I. Um, but I also think in a way it's also motivating because I think one of the problems with climate policy in the past, I've already mentioned one of them, which is that it viewed climate as this like abstract other or totally separate thing that didn't intersect with our everyday lives. Um, but the other problem is that it always put things off. It's like, well, in 2050 we need to deal with stuff or like the next generation or like the politicians in the future, we're just going to like punt that towards them. And it's very demobilizing and paralyzing. It's sort of like, OK, well, I guess I don't have to do anything about it. And you don't feel really connected to the issue. Whereas you know, we know from like the, the New Deal moment and the Great Depression moments that preceded it, we know from World War II, we know that when people feel like a sense of urgency, and not that I'm saying you know, we need to think about this as a war per se, but like when, there are sen when there's a sense of urgency, there can be a sense of, like, we're, no, we're actually going to do this. So I think that there is, in a, in a sort of maybe counterintuitive way, it's more motivating to think it's something in the present that we have to deal with now and less motivating to sort of think of mm -hmm. it as a future um, event. Great. And just a sort of one additional layer on this housing question, um, the, the homes guarantee, because I think that that's a concept that is not super familiar to a lot of folks. Yeah. So talk about that and why that's an important part of this housing provision. Um, so the homes guarantee is a is a demand that comes from some amazing tenants rights movements in the U.S. that have like banded together in a coalition and have been organizing under the banner of this homes guarantee idea. And the idea is everyone should have a home, right? Simple idea, um, sort of like a basic sense of like human solidarity and sort of like provisioning and care that like we all need a place to live. Um, this I actually forgot to mention this before, but the other crisis that like a sort of massive investment in green affordable housing would help deal with is the homelessness crisis. I don't know the scale of that crisis in New Orleans, but there are cities around the country where it's like an enormous social crisis, just the degree of people being forced to sleep in the streets. Um, so we have a homelessness crisis. We also have a crisis of like poor and working class and middle class people in the U.S. unable to afford homes. I already mentioned that. We also, though, know, and this kind of dovetails a little bit with, with Dan's book, of course, which is that we're going to have massive amounts of climate-related migration. Um, that climate-related migration is not only across borders. It actually first often happens within borders. So folks escaping low-lying areas, escaping the home that flooded, or there was a fire, or there was a tornado, and they just don't have the money or the insurance to rebuild it, so they move elsewhere. So a lot of that happens within the U.S., but it's also going to happen across the Mexico-U.S. border, the Central American borders, and so on. So we're going to have a bunch more people that we need to welcome, right? to various places in the U.S. and, you know, to the U.S. As, you know, as a country. Um, and all of that suggests that we need to ensure that people have places to live. And so the Homes Guarantee is that basic demand. Um, and it dovetails really nicely with
with the Green New Deal, both because the Green New Deal is addressing the effects of the climate crisis and climate migration is one of those, but also, as I said, because like buildings and housing are the source of emissions, and so it just provides a kind of rights-based framework um, and a sort of responsive to movement framework to address the housing crisis in a way that I think very much address, um, intersects with the, with the climate crisis. One other thing I'll say really briefly is that the other thing that we support in the book is a jobs guarantee, and this is something that very much I think interlocks with a housing guarantee because again we need all these things to be built and we need the existing housing stock to be improved and what better way to do that than to guarantee people you know at least $15 an hour unionized public sector job that's gonna you know provide the workforce um, the needed labor to you know, build this new built environment. Mm -hmm. Great, thanks. So as you can see, lots of exciting stuff in here. I wanted to get Dan in a little bit here. Because um, <laughs> his book is awesome, awesome. It's not like I don't get, you know, I don't get to talk enough in the world. Like, yeah, like um, so let's start just with the title of your book and one of the, the core takeaways from the book, which is that um, this, you know, a lot of folks look at Trump and uh, say things like, Oh my gosh, his his like anti-immigrant sentiments are so anti-American, or they this, this these ideas don't represent us. And um, in your book, uh, you very much situate this present moment in a much longer history of settler colonialism in the United States, and particularly like the last forty years or so of history. So, um, talk to us about how you chose the title for your book and why having that historical orientation is so important for how we understand conditions today. Yeah, I, I first got the idea for the book around the time that Trump won the Republican nomination. Like most people, I didn't think he was likely going to win the presidency. I thought that, <laughs> that person would. She will be not the name. But she didn't. And, uh, but, but I started thinking about the book because I was like, wow, why, you know, this guy, uh, this monstrous individual, comes down the escalator and declares that. Uh, Mexicans are rapists and criminals, and some, I assume, are, are good people. And that's what launches his campaign, and that's what he rides all the way through the primaries into the convention. And the response from a lot of, of liberals was, this is not normal. And on the one hand, I want to be generous, and it's good that it's coming from a good place in part, that, that, that this shouldn't be normal. But unfortunately, what I knew from reporting on, on immigration for a while and being involved as an organizer about in the mid-2000s, uh, mid-aughts, was that it was all too normal. That in fact, um, especially just looking over the last few decades, it has been Trump's bipartisan predecessors that have created the politics that allowed Trump's rhetoric to resonate as widely as it did and created the institutions that allowed him to persecute immigrants the way that he has. In the early 1990s, uh, we had, uh, in, I think it's 1993 or so, we had around 4,000 Border Patrol agents in this country. Today we have nearly 20,000. That's a number that went up, not under Trump, but under his bipartisan, normal bipartisan predecessors. We went from having almost no real fencing on the U.S.-Mexico border in the early 90s to over 650 miles today. And that's not, by and large, tr stuff that Trump has done. Trump has certainly innovated in these cruel ways. Uh, he, he, he used, uh, he separated families at the border. Obama incarcerated families t together. Um, separating the families is, is worse, but incarcerating the families together is pretty bad. And the law that Trump used to do so is not a law that he got passed. It's a law that criminalizes unauthorized entry into this country that's been on the books since the 1920s. And that Bush and Obama in particular began to use a lot more than their predecessors. 
So the idea was in part is saying this is all too normal, and in fact, it's the, the normal bipartisan predecessors that preceded Trump who, who made Trump possible, which is unfortunately a lesson um, that in the last week and a half, it appears that too many people have not learned in this country because we're about to put, it, I hope not, but potentially nominate the, the very sort of politician who made Trump possible as the Democratic nominee to take on mm -hmm. Donald Trump, which is just deeply disturbing. Um, the, 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 the politics of, of, of the last few decades has been uh, beginning in the Clinton administration, scapegoating the, the, the movement of people, of labor, migrants, for the problems caused by the free movement of capital and an empire. This is, this is what it functionally did. It's also true in a more conspiratorial sense. There's an amazing memo that I discovered. I wasn't the first person to discover anything, but it's out there that I cite in my book from Rahm Emanuel in the, in the 1990s to Bill Clinton. He was a top aide to Bill Clinton at the time. And uh, as all things Rahm Emanuel does, is just totally terrible and cynical. <laughs> and what he says is, if we're going to maintain public support for, the, for, for, uh, for uh, legal trade with Mexico, then we have to crack down on, we have to make a performance, a show of cracking down on illegal trade, i.e. people and narcotics. So it was, it, it, it was both, I think in many cases, it's more of like a, of a political economic function, why it, why it works, but in some cases, in Rahm Emanuel's case, it was actually like the idea in a very explicit way. And then under the Bush administration, Obama, um, we do have an effort to attempt to, to legalize the 11, 12 million, depending on estimates, undocumented immigrants in the country. But what they're facing is a uh, massively, increasingly radicalized Republican right that opposes anything that they call amnesty, any legalization. Um, even, even, even just the Dream Act, which would legalize you know the most sympathetic undocumented immigrants in the country. And so, what both Bush and Obama do in an attempt to win over these far right extremists is push this thing called comprehensive immigration reform, which on the one hand would legalize undocumented immigrants, that's good, but then would also create guest worker expanded guest worker programs for business, which is bad because it, guest worker programs bring in immigrants. As, as, as this abstracted labor rather than people with civil and political rights, and then more enforcement to, to please the right-wing nativists. But these nativists never came along. And so what, what they did, what both Bush and Obama did, is, is increasingly radicalize their own enforcement in an attempt to win credibility with the right. Um, in, in 2006, George W. Bush signed the Secure Fence Act, which built about 650 miles of fencing on the border, which in many places looks precisely, for those of you who've been to the border, like what Trump would call a wall. And who voted for that? Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden. So this book in general, and I, I should explain the all-American nativism, but yeah, it, it, it's about that. <laughs> um, and then there's a lot of settler colonialism too, but that's a good first answer. <laughs> Keep going a little bit on the, let's nativism? Get, yeah. Yeah, okay, so, um, so I, I, like, I, I like the word nativism, I don't like the existence of the political phenomenon of nativism, but I like it because um, it's a peculiarly American word to describe xenophobia, something we see in many places, and um, the reason I like the word nativism is because I think if we like, interrogate it, it forces us to understand how, how, how settler, settler colonists, people who were, were migrants themselves, who came from Europe and their descendants and uh, in a project to dispossess indigenous people of their land across a bloodily expanding westward uh, frontier, how they came, how we, in my case, came to see ourselves as natives 
and thus how, how Nate, because that is a, a prerequisite of then becoming nativist. And so I put the, this, a lot of my book is about the last, uh, since the 1990s, and, and maybe also since the 1960s, like really like contemporary immigration politics and the contemporary anti-immigrant politics. But I thought it was really important to go all the way back and explain how what's going on currently and in recent decades is really part of this broader racial population politics that has been the explicit governing philosophy of this country for a very long time, like literally in the law until 1965. Until 1965, we had explicitly racist immigration laws from the beginning, from the Naturalization Act of, I think it's 1790, which opened citizenship to any free white person, through the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and the gradual uh, prohibition of entry from basically all of Asia and then almost all of the world except for you know Northwestern Europe thereafter through 1965. Um, and, uh, and thinking about that as part of a process uh, of settler colonialism, part of, part of the politics that made the colonization of, of freed slaves outside of this country the only comprehensible form of, of, of that abolition could take for many white mm -hmm. abolitionists before the Civil War. Um, and even through the Civil War, um, as part of the politics that made resi white resistance to the great migration of black people out of the South to the North, um, the one of the most consequential uh, things of the 20th century, um, that this is all um, all part of one broader, broader racial population politics <laughs> that ultimately serves the powerful and mm -hmm. serves capital mm -hmm. and empire. Mm -hmm. Great. Oh. <laughs> uh, there's so many threads there. This is really a challenge because we have limited time. So I'm going to kick it back to Thea for a minute. Um, there, um, <laughs> one of the things that I love the most about um, your book is that it um, it's very sober in its assessments. Like it does not. It's not trying to pretend like we got this or everything's going to be okay. Um, but it does really, for me, it really sparked my imagination around what what might be possible and what is possible. There is. There's like some very hopeful overtones to the book, yeah. um, and one of them was about um, the role of leisure and play and a shortened work week, um, which I think we could all get. But yeah, <laughs> I think we could all get behind. So, uh, could you just share a little bit, like, kind of some of the visions of like what spaces might look like and what life might be like right. if we were to walk this path? Yeah, thank you. I love that you went to the leisure question. Um, so. Um, I was kind of started to say this before, but I'm going to tease it out a little bit more and then come mm -hmm. to the question, which is, you know, something that, that actually Nikki and I talked about last night, there's a line early in the book that says, in the 21st century, all politics are climate politics. And so the idea of that is, again, to break down this sort of like arbitrary divide between what's climate related or environmental related and what are all the other issues that we care about, right? Um, and so one of the ways that we play that out in the book is to think about what it, social science jargon, but I'm just gonna use it, what our built environment looks like. So our built environment is just literally all the stuff around us that's a physical infrastructure, right? It's this bookstore, it's the street outside, it's our cars, it's our homes, it's the office buildings, it's everything that is our like built infrastructure that we as humans move in and out of. And to think about the ways, as I kind of said with housing, that all of that has implications for climate. Currently, unfortunately, all of that is designed, or you know, whether intentionally or not, 
to be very carbon intensive, right? So the way that we get to work, we drive, maybe, maybe not here, maybe not everybody, but a lot of Americans drive to work, right? Um, so we drive on these long highways um, from suburbs. Suburbs are designed in these really sprawled ways um, with these detached houses, um, in addition to the segregation and race and class pieces of that, which I kind of already mentioned earlier. So Which is itself anti-biker politics. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, anyways. So, um, yeah. um, so anyway, um, we, we do all of these things, and this also includes our recreation, our quote-unquote free time, which under capitalism really isn't free time, because under our free time we're doing other things to help capitalism, like shop, right? And so the way that our free time is organized is also really carbon intensive, because we have to drive somewhere, like sort of the 1950s dream is I'm going to like drive somewhere for the weekend, or I'm going to go to the, you know, the more recent 1990s dream of like I'm going to go to the shopping mall, or whatever it is. Now the sort of 2000s dream is I'm going to sit at home alone and watch Netflix. I will not tell you because it'll be too scary about how much energy it consumes to stream things and if you just are doing that as one person how inefficient that is but anyway watch things together um, so, so like you know all of these leisure activities which again aren't truly leisure because they're not like chosen freely they're not autonomous they're not necessarily community they're like things that we're kind of instructed to do to kind of keep the accumulation motor and the growth motor going um, are super carbon intensive and also like they don't make us happy and I say this as someone who like loves a new dress like it's like I understand I'm like I'm an aesthetic I like objects like it's not to be like an or like anti-consumption, but it's like these forms of, of leisure don't necessarily make us happy in addition to that they're bad for the environment. So the way that we try to kind of wrap around this is to think about what would a model of life and of like actual free time and actual community look like that would be better for the environment and also would be more egalitarian and democratic. And the way that we think about this is public luxury is one thing. And another way to think about that that's kind of related but distinct is collective consumption. So I'll start with the second one because it's um, maybe more obvious and I've st started to say it already. One is like to think about how we can consume together, not just because like we're communists and we like to consume things together, but because like it's actually more environmentally rational, right? So if you ride a bus, that's like way better than being in your individual car, right? Um, if we, you know, think about just mass transit and mass public housing as opposed to like driving individual cars and these detached suburban homes, like that consuming together, because consumption is not the problem. Humans have to consume. We need to metabolize with nature, like we need to get things in our body and out of our body and on our body and all that kind of stuff. So we need to consume, but we can do so in ways that are more pleasurable and way less intensive, not just in terms of carbon, but in terms of the other resources we have to pull out of the earth to make all of these things, right? Um, we have a whole chapter on like the resources required to make electric vehicles, like the mined resources that a lot of them come from elsewhere in the world, right? And so thinking about ways of consuming collectively is just more like socially and naturally um, rational. And then the public luxury thing is kind of connected, but it's just like, instead of thinking of, of luxury and leisure and like the finer things in life or whatever as some individual pursuit that we do separately, we do privately, and we do in really unequal ways, like some of us have access to jet planes and fancy vacations and some of us don't, instead we should do them together in public um, and, and think about things that are inherently low carbon. So for example, seeing a play, no carbon. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, maybe the building or whatever, but like, just like communi communicating with one another, um, doing artistic things, um, hanging out in a park, going on a hike, all of these are inherently low to no carbon. And they're also the types of things that at various junctures in history, the American government has actually invested in. So I like, think of the amazing stuff that came out of the New Deal with, um, with the publicly supporting the arts, with publicly supporting recreation, with building paths through you know, our natural beauty so that we can walk around and commune and reflect and 
and do all the you know noblest humans things right so thinking about public luxury and collective consumption as as just kind of ways to not just reorganize our leisure time but actually rethink our whole set of priorities around how do we spend our time and what do we spend our time doing and i'll say just one last quick thing about about the work week um another thing that produces a lot of carbon is working too much um, and it, there's actually, you know, there's a lot of, there's a, quite a bit of research on this. Like the more hours we work and for like these awful wages and these terrible service jobs and, you know, unequal conditions, no unions, blah, blah, blah. But like the more we work, the more stuff we're producing and the more emissions are happening, the more people have to get to work. And so overwork is a source of carbon emissions. And so we need to reduce the work week, share the work more equally, have guaranteed work so we don't have people out of work that want it, right? And build socially useful things, um, and then be able to spend the rest of our time doing stuff that's maybe more interesting than our jobs might be. Do you mind sharing that there's a little anecdote in the book about the labor secretary at the time? Oh, and gonna, the we're going to have to look at it. Oh, okay. Well, here, I, oh, um, do you have it? Yeah, I'm not yeah gonna, I think I have it here. It's, um, okay, so labor secretary Frances Perkins, this is in the New Deal yes, era, yes, yes. Um, originally supported a 30-hour work week. Um, oh, and fear I'm that, sure. yes, uh, I remember fear, fear yeah. of everyone going drinking too much. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, good, thank you, sorry. Um, and, um, and also sorry. that, like, it was wartime, right? So yes. it was both, like, that war was locking people into longer hours, exactly. and then, but ultimately there was this decision made to, like, continue to stimulate consumption. Right. Um, instead of promoting, dip, like, alternate forms yeah. of leisure and oh, things yeah. like that. Thank you for bringing that up, and sorry, I'm terrible with names. No, I, I don't, don't expect that everyone was. No, I mean, I could, if I were a better person. Horace. Horace, see, I'll be again. So, yeah, the interesting thing about leisure, which I didn't mention, because I was just making it seem about, like, total pleasure things, and I'm, I think pleasure is important and we should value it politically, but the other thing that we can do with our leisure time, which can also be pleasurable, but sometimes grueling, is political work. And so, like, you know, we can think about the ways, and this is what some of the New Deal era and then post, post-war era policymakers were worried about about with leisure like they wanted some leisure because they wanted it to stimulate consumption but they also and they wanted to prevent like really terrible forms of overwork um sort of in a reformist spirit but they didn't want too much leisure because they were worried that people would like do radical things with the leisure time they were worried also they wouldn't consume enough to keep the economy but they're also worried you know in the sort of early red scare and then in the mccarthyist era people like using that free time to like read radical books and like meet with <laughs> radical people and do radical things and so I think you know the thing to think about with a shortened work week is it's good for the environment it's good for our like mental health and our pleasure and our emotions but it's also good for doing political work because I think one of the main impediments I know this in my own life as someone with a relatively more flexible and autonomous schedule as a professor than maybe some folks in this room I the main limit to my political work is my job and, and I love and I like teaching so that's a form of politics but it's like still like sometimes I would like to do more politics stuff and I just don't have time Time, right, so I think a shortened work week would open up space for organizing and demanding mm -hmm. even better Green New Deals. And Dan, you have a line in your book that nationalism is climate denialism. So I think that really threads these two conversations together. Could you talk a little more about that? Yeah. So I mean, obviously, like there's the classic form of climate denialism, which is uh, what's his name, James Inhofe, the senator from. <laughs> Oklahoma, who uh, brought like a snowball into the into Congress is like, well, if climate change is real, why am I holding a snowball? <laughs> uh, or, or Trump saying that climate change is a Chinese hoax. There's that kind of orthodox, Heartland Institute-funded climate denialism, which has been a serious problem. And we know uh, from documents that have been revealed and from this great podcast series, Drilled, um, that everyone should listen to if they haven't, that the fossil fuel industry played a major role in, in pushing this disinformation, even though their own scientists knew that climate change is indeed 
real. But I would argue that the most serious form of climate denialism today is right-wing nationalism and xenophobia, and because it is that politics that is premised on the notion that our that our destinies, our futures, our well, our future well-beings as Americans are somehow not fundamentally dependent on the future well-being of people everywhere in the world, that makes it impossible to take this unprecedented step of, of, of global cooperation to, to deal with climate change. The idea that our future is somehow not dependent on the, the, the well-being of the rest of the world going into the future, not even just that, but that our future well-being is dependent on the, the subjugation and immiseration of the rest of the world is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Um, and so to, I don't, it's no coincidence that the same politicians in the US and throughout the world who are most at the lead of anti-immigrant politics are also those who are refusing to take action against climate change. This is true in the US and it's true in Australia and it's true throughout Europe as well. So to take action on climate change, we have to defeat anti-immigrant politics and the basic kind of ideology within which it's embedded. Thanks. And you, um, one of the things I love about your book is that you trace um, sort of these like um, th these like narrative frames and how they've evolved over the years of um, why um, you know like why people hate immigrants, right? And um, I learned a lot in this section because you start by documenting like early roots in a, a more ecological frame, and um, I'm guessing that that might be some new information for the room also. So um, lay it on us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's one of the weirder things I discovered researching the book. Um, is so in, in I think it's 1968. This book called The Population Bomb is published. It's by this guy Paul. Ehrlich. And anyone maybe over 55, 60 in this room remembers that this was in a massively big deal. And most people under that age like might not have heard of this book. But it was a bestseller that argued that if population growth continued on its present course unchecked, there would be mass famine and the end of human civilization as we knew it. And it was a big deal and a generally accepted idea at the time. And this is a moment when modern environmental consciousness is coming about, when you know the first Earth Day is coming about, and uh, and you have groups founded like Zero Population Growth, whose goal in response to the population bomb is to reverse global population growth, and immediately one of their big issues is immigration, and this ophthalmologist. From Michigan, <laughs> yeah. This is Black twist. I, this is Black twist. Yeah. <laughs> Named John Tanton, who was involved in the Sierra Club and in Planned Parenthood, ends up becoming a, an early leader of zero population growth, but ends up moving away from it because they don't want to turn it into an exclusively hardcore anti-immigrant organization. And so, in 1979, he founds a group called the Federation for American Immigration Reform, and then over the years, plays a lead role in founding every other significant anti-immigrant organization in this country today. Center for Immigration Studies, US English, Numbers USA. And this is all coming out of this moment uh, of, uh, of, of uh, like nascent ecological consciousness and population, overpopulation 
hysteria, which is supposedly about population in general, but I'm surprised, surprised, it starts to become very concerned very quickly with the population of certain people mm. and the reproduction of certain women in particular. But this is where the, the anti-immigrant movement as we, the modern, the contemporary anti-immigrant movement is born in the 1970s, but it's not where it stays because that's not where they end up being able to find an anti-immigrant message that resonates as red hot culture war material. That starts in the 1980s when they start pursuing language politics. Uh, the English only movement, which is the big expression of nativism that John Tanton's network is pushing in the 1980s. The way that functions is it's kind of the gateway drug for nativism, the nativist movement, because it functions at two different registers. It functions on the explicitly racist register for ho for those people who are already there for that. Like it's clear that the U.S. that English only is is about like keep those people out. But then it also simultaneously, the really powerful thing about it is it simultaneously functions in a different liberal multicultural register, the Nation of Immigrants Assimilationist register, that we just want people to speak English so that we don't have a balkanized society. So it's doing both of those things at the same time and very successfully begins to mainstream nativist politics that way in the 1980s. One of the first ballot measures, English-only ballot measures in the 1980s is passed in San Francisco and then a statewide referendum for all of California. And this happens all over the country. And then in the 1990s, things get a little more hardcore. The frames shift to fit the generally reactionary political frames of that decade. The war on crime and anti-welfare politics. And immigrants are framed as a criminal threat and as a drain on public services. Public services paid for by the hardworking taxpayer. So the same sort of frames that are used to pathologize, demonize, and discipline poor black people are also very much the frames that are defining the anti-immigrant immigrant movement in the 1990s when, the decade when the most consequential anti-immigrant laws are passed, which we don't have time to get into, but they're bad laws. <laughs> and then, in, after September 11th, all these uh, old frames remain, but on top of that, immigrants are framed as a terrorist threat. And then, with Trump, it reaches sort of its hyperbolic, maximalist endpoint, which is immigrants as an existential threat. These ideas of white genocide, the great replacement, the reconquista, and the idea that, that the whole project, the whole settler colonialist project and its racist population politics are at risk of being reversed. And that, and that hysterically, this projection that that, that the colonized other is actually going to do settler colonialism to us. And that's where it is with, with Trump and his demand, his maximalist demand, to like hermetically seal the nation with a, a wall, which is you know, a, a, the, only, the only escalation left after everything that his bipartisan predecessors have done. And so that's how the framing is done. There's good news in the book, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is that you might not know it, given that Trump's in the White House, but Americans right now, according to polling data, it's very clear, have perhaps the most pro-immigrant opinions in U.S. history. So while the, while the right wing has been radicalizing in, in dangerous ways, that process of radicalization has also, been, has also kicked into gear a process of polarization. 
And that's a good thing. Because the bipartisan war on immigrants, on the political level, had a bipartisan basis in the grassroots, like amongst ordinary Americans of all sorts. In, in the 1990s, Republican and Democratic voters held very similar and very similarly negative opinions about immigrants. Um, many Latino and black Americans held very negative opinions about immigrants. It was a very anti-immigrant vibe in the 1990s. And that propelled the, the war on immigrants at the top. But then what happens is that in 2006, polarization sets in. And the reason that sets in is because the right wing goes too far, pushes pushes to an extreme that's beyond the bounds of the bipartisan war on immigrants. In December 2005, the US House of Representatives passes the Sensenbrenner Bill, which would criminalize mere undocumented presence in the country, which then and now remains a civil offense, not, not a crime, and also would have criminalized providing aid to undocumented immigrants. And this sparks widespread opposition. It goes nowhere in the Senate, but it does pass the House. And in response, what happens in 2006, many people in here may remember, what happens in response is one of the two significant social movements in the US of that decade, which is this massive immigrant rights movement against the Sensenbrenner Bill, a whole spring full of some of the largest protests <coughs> I've ever been to in this country. Just out of curiosity, how many folks in this room mobilized with groups like the Congreso here in New Orleans in that era? Can you raise your hands? That's in Portland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but though, I mean, similar mobilization. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, everywhere, everywhere. It, yeah. And it was made. Yeah, and then one of the biggest, there was protests in March, I believe, and then the big one was May Day, where, mm -hmm. Immigrant workers take back May 1st as the workers' holiday in the country where it was created by immigrant worker radicals, but then banished, basically. And what happens at that point is you start to see the opinion, public opinion around immigration uh, polarize on partisan lines. And while Republicans remain anti-immigrant, Democratic voters become increasingly pro-immigrant. It becomes a partisan issue, and that's good. <laughs> and then what happens is under Obama, that process accelerates, because as I mentioned earlier, Obama, in an attempt to win credibility with the right, and also to some degree because these were just his politics, um, engaged in massive crackdowns, especially deportations, especially by linking the criminal justice system to the immigration enforcement system mm -hmm. through this program called Secure Communities, mm -hmm. and also by expanding the number of people who are being formally deported mm -hmm. at the border, which is not it, which is reported sometimes as a statistical change. It was actually an extremely consequential. Do you know that we change. uncovered um, Secure Communities here? Yeah. It was literally, um, there was a FOIA document that we got at the Worker Center that had a little scribble on the side that said Secure Communities. And, then and we were like, to, to, huh, Chris, to Chris Newman? what is this? And th that was sort of the beginning of, um, like, you know. With Enron and yeah. Uncover yeah. the, yeah. yeah. Uncover the what's yeah. that what's that campaign called? There was a like, big, like, lawsuit that, yeah. where the judge was basically like, oh, you're lying, the government's lying. Yeah, exactly, um, yeah. We're just now getting documents from from that settlement yeah. stuff. So dealing with C delayed. dealing with CPB and ICE as a reporter, even before definitely like before Trump was was already hell. They yeah. were the worst um, agency. Uh, 
So Obama wins justly the, the title deporter in chief from an immigrant rights movement that, that is itself split. There's an establishment inside the Beltway wing, groups like what was then called La Raza and other groups that are uh, basically heating, staying close to the White House and heating the White House's call to keep, to train all fire on Republican opponents of comprehensive immigration reform and not to protest the White House for its mass deportations. But then the youth movement, uh, not only youth, but particularly youth who say, no, Obama's the one who's deporting my family member. Um, and that movement confronts Obama and creates these sanctuary, creates sanctuary, begins to create sanctuary city policies across the country to resist precisely Obama's secure communities program. And ultimately that movement achieves significant reductions in deportations. Obama's de deportations under Obama plummet in his last years in office, absolutely no credit to Obama, entirely credit to the immigrant rights movement that made him do it. I want to clarify that. No credit to Obama. <laughs> and then but, and then we see more polarization. Yeah. Um, and then Trump takes office, and he kicks that into turbo drive because he contaminates this whole history of, of once normal-seeming bipartisan anti-immigrant politics. He contaminates it with his toxic brand and exposes all these things, like the 2000 Secure Fence Act, which politicians like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and Barack Obama thought was a moderate, normal thing to vote for, this massive militarization of the border. He contaminates that with his toxic brand and exposes all of that for what it truly is, which is monstrously ra monstrous racism. And um, that's where we are today. And uh, it's clear what the last few decades of history, I think I show pretty clearly in my book, show, is that the only way that immigrant freedom or really anything else that's good in the world can be achieved is through crushing the radical right, which I'm not saying is easy, but it's just true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's our homework. <laughs> that's a great place to segue. Um, we, I want to get in some audience questions here too, but it's, it's, it's laughable and also this is like the world we're in, right? Like in the 90 minutes that we're having this conversation, we're going to lose like a football field of wetlands just here off the Louisiana coast, right? And so it's like the enormity of the problem can really paralyze folks. and. Um, you two are both amazing organizers in addition to putting out beautiful books and um, I, uh, I'd like to invite you to just um, give a little message if you were, you know, good organizers always leave a few to-dos or asks of the audience. So um, what are some of the things that we're not doing now that you really feel like if more people were engaging or doing or whatever um, might be enough to start to tip the scales? I'm just a podcaster. Thea, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that you're ducking out now. I see how I'll follow, um, I'll follow. Well, I'll just circle back to something I said earlier, but maybe expand on it a little bit, this notion that all politics are climate politics. So I definitely do not want to leave you with the idea that you need to become an environmentalist. I mean, I hope we all have some, you know, allegiance to, like, the earth and blah, blah, blah. But I'm not going to try to sell you on, like, join the environmental movement as if, again, it's like a separate thing that we need to do. I think the more interesting 
and politically motivating, but also like urgently important work to do is to like do the work you're doing if you're already organizing or educating or doing art or like whatever the wonderful things I'm sure people in this room already engaged in and think about and think through and learn about and educate yourself and your comrades and colleagues and coworkers and whoever about what the climate implications are of the work you already do and how to connect that work to the urgency of saving the planet and like saving humanity and saving of course like the most vulnerable people who are going to be immediately impacted by the climate crisis. So, you know, if you are a teacher, for example, that could look like a lot of things. That could look like integrating the climate crisis into your pedagogy and connecting with your, um, you know, with your students who trust me are already concerned about this and anxious about it and want to learn about what they can do and also what the causes are. So it might just be like an educational piece. It might be like if you teach in the public schools and I don't know what the union situation is here, but if you're a member of a union and you do some internal work within that union, like how can we? Is it bad? Yeah, they're never public. Yeah, there's a charter. So there's no, there's there's no, 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 that's terrible. Okay. Um, but let's, let's, I'm just going to put that aside because if there are teachers union, the example might hold. Maybe, you know, I don't know. Anyway. I'm Maybe some of you live somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm going to just stick with it because I think it's a cool example of something that the teachers union did in LA. Um, and I don't even know that they were thinking about the Green New Deal yet. So everyone, re like, remember the massive teacher strike in LA and the massively amazing, like, contract that they won that was a sort of, like, bargaining for the common good, like, social movement unionism that addressed a lot of the needs of their students beyond like the immediate classroom, right? So that's like a framework for union organizing that applies beyond teachers, applies to a lot of public sector and nurses and stuff like that. Um, but the point is that one of the things that they bargained for and got was more green spaces um, in their in their like school campuses or whatever, right? So like increase the amount, like tear up that like concrete that creates these urban heat islands that are particularly bad for working class and racialized communities. Like those communities are actually hotter, like they are already experiencing again the climate crisis like more intensely, um, and so get rid of those that asphalt and put in greenery which is like psychologically emotionally all these ways good for students but also is good for the climate right and makes the buildings more energy efficient and maybe allows for some more passive heating and cooling and some shading and whatever so so the idea is like in a strike against some recalcitrant school district that's trying to create what exists right now in New Orleans, unfortunately, mm. right, that's trying to privatize and charterize schools, like, they brought to that table not just their wages, not just their benefits, not just the classroom sizes and conditions, but, like, we need a school system that reflects, like, the needs of the climate crisis and actually addresses them in some way. And also addresses the way that the climate crisis has a specific character in urban context, right, and the ways that it plays out, right? So that's, like, a thing that you can do as an educator. Um, if you are a housing rights activist, which some of us in this room are tenants rights activists might be, you know, I won't repeat myself about green social housing, but it's about demanding both that like there's an enormous build out of affordable housing publicly provided for, but also that we get free weatherization and free insulation. I mean, we could get into the specific built environment of New Orleans and how much that, how much we could demand, you know, that, that there's real like adaptation and mitigation around flooding and, and, and sea rise and, you know, so there, the point is that in many of our fields that we're already in, there is a climate angle. There's an, always a climate angle, I should say, not, not many. There's, there's always a climate angle. And I think the question is to build a stronger movement for the Green New Deal. It's not about all of us 
like leaving what we're doing and joining the environmental movement, though I would always encourage folks to join Sunrise, to join DSA, which does a lot of eco-socialist work. I mean, there are specific organizations to join, but I think what's actually more important is to always stay where you are, use the collective resources that include human beings, but also institutional resources at your command, and like kind of channel them towards egalitarian, democratic ways to address the climate crisis, right? Because I think we're always stronger in collectives and in communities, and so it's not always the best thing to just like start something new or go off and do something alone, but just like, you know, use the groups that you're already involved in and just think about what those climate connections are. And if you don't know what they are, there's a lot to learn. And there's, you know, our book is a little entree into it, but there's also, you know, lots of other resources that I'm happy to share with folks in, in Q&A or afterwards. Um, but I think it's an exciting time to be doing all these organizing things, because I think these connections in terrible ways, like sort of Dan was getting at some of this, in terrible ways, like the connection between xenophobia and the climate crisis are becoming clearer to us. But then, you know, the flip side is like we organize across those intersections in ways that I think are more inspiring than just like sidling ourselves mm -hmm. into separate um, activist communities. So I, I, I've spent almost every free hour of my life in the last few months volunteering for the Bernie Sanders campaign and organizing in New England to get people from Rhode Island, get buses up to New Hampshire, and then to attempt to, to win Massachusetts after that. And this is a difficult last few weeks after it really felt like we were very close to doing something um, enormous. And I'm invested in that campaign for all the obvious reasons everyone is and around immigration in particular. And Bernie does have a great immigration program, it, uh, platform. It hasn't been a big issue for, for him historically, but his platform is very good. Um, but, it ha but that platform just came out a few months ago, and that's not why Latinos in this country became a, arguably like the core <laughs> demographic of his base. It's because precisely of the same things that draw everyone to Bernie Sanders, which are his transformative universal programs for working class Americans and the Latinos who have flocked to Bernie Sanders, I, I, I think, see themselves as at the center and at the vanguard of this country's multiracial working class. And so this has been a difficult few weeks, but um, but I don't know if anyone saw Bernie's speech today where he basically laid out how he's going to knock Biden out on Sunday. <laughs> um, that's going to be primetime prime time viewing. Uh, must see TV. Um, um, we don't have a lot of time, as, as Thea's laid out, but there are a lot of reasons for optimism that Bernie laid out today. He, he's crushing amongst people, I think, under 50 um, in this country. The people who are the future of this country, no shade on older, no, no shade on people who are in Bernie's generation. But, um, and, uh, and we're winning on the issues. And what we, we're try, what, we, what we tried to do here, and what we're still trying to do, there's still a shot. Joe Biden, let's see how he stands up, not only having to speak for more than a minute, but having to respond to the, the questions that Bernie's going to be asking him on Sunday. There's still a shot. But what we were trying to do, and are still trying to do, is, is uh, a bit of a moonshot that puts the cart before the horse. And we were right to do our best to try it, and we're right to continue to do our best to try it. But we were trying to elect a, social, a socialist or or 
class struggle, social democrat, however you want to characterize Bernie, a, a, a pretty radical president, um, well in advance, well beyond our own institutional capacity as the left mm -hmm. in this country, a country that is notable amongst its peers for never having had a labor party and never having had a social democracy. So it's pretty remarkable what we've done, but it also shows what we have to do, which is build institutions. And I think what's really critical now is people keeping their heads straight and not getting defeatist because anyone who's been involved in the US left for more than the last four years knows that five years ago would have been incomprehensible that a self-described socialist would be this close to winning the Democratic primary. And so the bad news is we don't have a lot of time. The good news is that we have more power as the US left that after decades on the US left than I could have ever imagined. Um, and that we need to stay committed to all of these projects and build institutions so that um, if we don't seize it, the, if we don't get the opportunity this time that we're ready the next time, because crises are here, they're happening, interconnected public health, economic, ecological crises. Um, and the rights organize, and we need to be, too. The only, like, I've never felt more uncertain about what this country and the world is gonna look like or be like three months from now, every <laughs> in my life. And that's terrifying, it's also is what it is. <laughs> so as we wrap up, um, just wanna invite folks, if, um, if you are a part of an organization, it can be a C3 organization, it can be anything that involves you and some other people that you feel like is related to these topics, could you just raise your hand? Okay, and so like look around the room, and if you don't know people that have their hands raised here, let's use some of the time after this to get to know each other a bit um, because that co that connectivity is a huge piece of how we're actually gonna win these kind of policies. And if you don't know who to talk to, you can come talk to me. I work at the <laughs> New Orleans Workers' Center for Racial Justice and we're thinking about this kind of stuff all the time. Um, the second thing is that um, totally should go buy their book after this. Um, this and all so much more. Also, this is an amazing independent <laughs> bookstore, so don't go home, don't be like, oh, and then go home and be like, oh, now I'm gonna buy it on Amazon, like buy it right now here. Um, and third, I thought to close, we could just take a deep breath together. Um, this was a lot of content. Um, and so maybe a big inhale and let it go. And a round of applause. Thank you all so much.